The story of David and Goliath is one of the best known stories in all of scripture. Even those who haven't read a single word in scripture have probably heard the names David and Goliath. I remember my uh, daughter asked me, or my daughter asked me, so dad, what are you preaching on uh, this Sunday? I said the story of David and Goliath, and she looks at me like, oh, dad, oh, good grief. I mean, everybody knows that story already. I mean, what could you possibly say that they don't already know? Uh, that's actually not my intention, is to, to say things you don't already know, but to help remind us all what we should know. Uh, and what is in the text. And there is a, a, a certain danger when we come to texts like this, texts that are so familiar to us. Um, we read them, or my temptation when I read them, or I hear other, um, uh, other preachers speaking on text is, hmm, finally, finally a sermon I can sleep through in good conscience. I mean, there's nothing new here in this story. So, but my hope is that whether you're a believer or a skeptic, whether you're young or old, whether you've walked with Jesus for a year, a week, or maybe decades, that this story's for you. This story's for me. And one of the things that I'd like to show you this morning is that this story is one of the clearest, one of the most beautiful, one of the most powerful pictures we have of Jesus. Now, I know, I know. Okay, Jesus is not in the story, or at least you didn't read his name explicitly. True, (laughs) I'm not that dumb. But if you read this story in context, if you read this story in context, the greater context of Scripture, then this story, like every other story in Scripture, points us forward to Jesus. The center of God's story. Jesus is really the warrior king who defeats more than Philistines. Um, he He defeats, rather, he defeats sin and death. And like David, he does it through a very unexpected means, a surprising way. No one expected David to defeat a giant with a stone and a sling. No one thought that through the death of a Galilean rabbi, through his suffering, through his humiliation, his death on the cross, Satan and his entire army would be defeated. So you see that the victory of David is really a preview of the victory of Christ. But here's the question I want to begin with this morning. How do you regain a passion for missions in your local community? If I'm honest with you, I've wanted to pack my bags and come home more times than I care to admit as a missionary. What keeps missionaries on the field? What keeps missionaries thinking missionally? Are you a regular attender of this church or another church? But inwardly, if you're honest, you're bored by grace. Where's the boldness in witness gone? So how do you regain a love for the gospel? How do you regain, rekindle that fire that you had for witness and living missionally? Here's the answer. I think the answer that comes from this text is this. You need to see your life from a different perspective. You need to see the circumstances of your life through a different lens. 
The theme of perspective is actually nothing new to the reader of 1 Samuel up to this point. 1 Samuel chapter 16, we meet Samuel, a prophet, literally in Hebrew, a seer. That's someone who is supposed to have the divine perspective on life. So Samuel is given the mission to anoint the next king. So he goes to the house. Jesse, the possible candidates are, st- are placed before him. And here was Samuel's perspective. Well, God sent me. I see the candidates in front of me. Um, I need to choose one. So, well, Eliab, well, he's tall like Saul. He looks like a real stud. It's got to be him, right? N- no. Okay. W- w- why not? You see, the problem was, and we read this in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, he saw only the outward appearance. His perspective was off. And that theme of seeing is continued in 1 Samuel chapter 17. So this morning, I want us to look at three false perspectives and one correct one. Three ways of seeing life which actually will hinder your faith. Hinder you from growing as a Christian. Hinder the mission of this church. And one that will motivate you. Here they are. Jealous faith. Lacking faith. Counterfeit faith. And true faith. Jealous. Lacking. Counterfeit. And true faith. First of all, jealous faith. Look at verses 28 to 31. For six weeks, Goliath marches, marched up and down the Elah Valley, mornings and evenings, in order to intimidate and mock the, Israel, the Israelite army. For six weeks, the whole army listened, fidgeted, muttered among themselves, and did nothing. Verse 24 says, And when they saw... That theme again. And when they saw the giant, they were terrified and fled. And to be honest, I don't blame them. Nine feet tall, his armor weighed as much as some of us in this room, or at least as much as some of us would like to weigh in this room, but 135 pounds. His helmet bronze, chest armor bronze, leg armor bronze. In the desert, he would have looked like Iron Man. The light coming off his armor would be blinding, intimidating, scary. And David's the no-name shepherd boy, messenger boy, the water boy of the basketball team. Nobody pays attention to him. He's the guy who didn't make the cut. So he hears the taunts from Goliath, and he asks this question, Did you hear that? That's one of the dumbest questions in all of Scripture. Why? Of Of course they heard that. They've heard the same speech twice a day for six weeks. Math, 84 times. Did you hear that? Who is this? And then the Bible goes PG-13 on us. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine who mocks the armies of the living God? You see, David is not impressed by all the pomp and circumstance of this giant. Eliab, did you notice the older brother? He gets angry. Did you catch that in the text? He's angry. He's he's angry at the taunts of Goliath, right? 
Mm, no, not so much. No, who's he angry at? David. Why? Well, because he's an older brother. Older brothers, if you've ever had one, can't be shown up by their little you know, baby brother. Verse 28, he's piping mad. Why did you come? And you hear the mocking in his voice when he asks this question. Why did you leave the few sheep in the desert? Translation, little brother, you're small, unimportant, and you don't even have a real job. And then he says, I know you. You came to see what real men do. I'm sure he's puffing his chest out at this point. You wanted to see a fight. You have to understand the irony of that statement. If, if, if I were David, and I were thinking quickly on my feet, I would have said, <laughs> fight? What fight? Oh, 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 you mean the fight that should have started six weeks ago, but because you're a bunch of lily-livered pansies, you just stand there playing tic-tac-toe in the stand. Fight? What fight? So what's going on here? Well, Eliab recognizes the courage of David, and he's angry. Why? Because he didn't have it. He doesn't have the right perspective. He only sees David's courage, David's gifting, and he's jealous. Question, are we any different? Do you find yourself constantly comparing yourself to others? How they look in a bathing suit, how they can manage two jobs, four kids, eight sport teams, three church committees, and the local PTA. How much they earn, what degrees they have, how, how they have a loving and serving husband and yours props his feet up on the coffee table eating Cool Ranch Doritos and watching the NFL Red Zone. We do this in the church. We can spiritualize this really well, can't we? Oh, 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 he, 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 he. He's a teacher. He's a pastor. He's a leader. He can pray better. And I'm, well, just me. I can't do any of those things as well as they can. And And then here's the catch. So I do nothing. We fail to live by faith when we constantly compare ourselves to others, the giftings of others, And the circumstances of others, that jealous perspective leaves us immobile, handicapped, unthankful, joyless, and bitter. We become critics of everyone and everything. I need to move on because that point just hits too close to home for me. Point number two, (laughs) lacking faith. Look at verses 31 to 39. Saul hears what David's saying, what David is saying, in the ranks, and he invites David into his tent. David says to Saul, well, if no one else will fight, I will. Question, who should fight Goliath? Who should fight on behalf of God's people in order to save them from a life of slavery? Answer, Saul. He's God's king, That's why he was given the job in the first place. 1 Samuel 9, uh, verse 2, Saul was chosen because he was taller than everyone else. He was strong. He was powerful. He was 
Israel's Goliath. But Saul remains in his tent, sipping a mint julep, and says what we're all thinking. David, come on, let's be reasonable here. I mean, you're young, verse 33, meaning you're naive. Translation, David, when you get to be a bit older, when you've tasted more of life, then you'll see things more clearly like I do. We do this with our, with our kids. As parents, we do this with our kids all the time. Jesse, our oldest son, Jesse, you know, uh, you won't understand my decisions right now, but when you get older, you will thank me. One day, you're going to thank me for my unbelievable, uh, unbelievable wisdom, my impeccable discernment, and my clear thinking. Well, we never quite say it like that as parents, right? But that's what we mean. You see, Saul is the voice of, of, of reason, logic. At the center of his reality is his intellect. But his intellect, did you notice, leaves him helpless, hopeless, faithless, actionless, courageless. What he's missing is this. He was appointed to that position and given that task by the king of the earth. He forgot that the people over whom he rules belong to the creator of the universe. They are his covenant people. And he forgot that the land on which they're standing, uh, Judah, the place of this fight, is home territory. It's a home game. It belongs to, it belongs to him. It's promised to him and his people. He forgot that God's spirit had empowered him, has come over him strengthened him to carry out this mission. He forgot his history. The supernatural victories in Egypt, the desert, all the battles won up to this point, they have vanished from his mind, from his memory, like mist in the heat of the desert, and he's just overwhelmed. He only sees the here and the now. Are we really any different than Saul? I keep asking those who are more mature than, um, than I, how do you grow in Christ? How, how did you get to be so mature? How, how, did, you, how did you get through, through those years of terrible suffering? What about the injustice that you suffered? You know, over the years, I keep getting the same answers from the most mature Christians. David, just keep reading Scripture. Just, just keep reading scripture. At one point I thought, aren't all you mature Christians any more creative than that? Isn't that just another duty? What should our motivation be? To let scripture define our reality. I think that's what they're getting at. To let the stories of God's victories in the past, the promises for the present and the future define us. When life seems to fall apart at the seams, I read the story of, of Joseph in a reminder that God wasn't on vacation. God had every detail under control all the time. When things get financially tight, I can read Matthew chapter 6, that God cares for every single bird, and he loves me more than he loves them. When shame for my sin overwhelms me, I read Hebrews chapter 9, that Jesus Christ was offered up once 
for all, for all my sin. I can stand in the face of the enemy. I can stand in the face of my accuser and say, come here, you smutty-faced liar. You throw my sin in front of my eyes day in and day out, but you know what? I have a champion, a redeemer who has thrown my sins into the depths of the sea and one day will throw you into the pit of hell. You see, that's reality. That's reality. That's why we sing, when Satan tempts me to despair, tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. You see, and this is difficult. Young people, stay with me here. You see, you don't read Scripture to escape reality. You read Scripture to find reality. Point three. Counterfeit faith. Look at verses 8 to 10 and 43 to 44. Goliath looks at himself. He looks at his armor. He remembers his victories. He's self-confident and strong. Robert Alter, an Old Testament theologian, says, normally you don't find this much detail in narrative texts. It's not normal. For, For us, when we tell a story, we love all the juicy details for a story to be good, Right? But this would be way over the top for a Hebrew. Here's the point. Counterfeit faith looks at itself, finds security and confidence in your own abilities and potential. Are we really any different on this score either? Why do you strive to climb a career ladder? To get that degree that adds those initials to your name? Here's what I see in, mis- in ministry. After years of ministry, the th- one of the things, or some of the things that I see motivating people, really, so that you can prove to your father, to your family, to your graduating class, that you've really accomplished something. So that they will see you, respect you, cheer you, be impressed by you. So that they can be proud of you. Here's a real quick test. When you first meet people, how much of that conversation revolves around you? Do you find yourself manipulating the conversation so that you can discreetly impress them? We want and long to show that we're somebody, so we've accomplished something. Or what about a new job? Maybe you're in a position where you're looking at, in a, uh, looking at a new job. Do you want that new job, that promotion, because you're going to get better paid? And therefore more important, or because it allows you to serve the kingdom of God to a greater extent. Counterfeit faith is a faith in which you find refuge and confidence in yourself. Counterfeit faith says, I just need to think more positively about myself. Drive fear away. That's exactly what Goliath did. And here's what I want you to notice. Goliath was completely unaware that he was in danger. Grave danger. He was vulnerable. He looked to himself. And by looking to himself, he lost all touch with reality. So we have jealous faith. We have lacking faith. We have counterfeit faith. And then finally, true faith. Verses 37 and verses 45 to 47. 
You see, David doesn't look to others and what they can do, nor does he look to what he can do. He looks, verse 45, to the name of the Lord. The name is the person of God, the whole being of God. God is omnipresent, omniscient. He's omnipotent. Verse 25, he's living. Eliab says about David, "Who who does he think he is? Who does David think he is? The question is actually right. But here's how it should have been stated. Who does David think he is? You see, the answer to that question determines or determined everything about David's life, and it will yours as well. Who do you think he is? David waltzes into the valley of Elah with a God-dominated, not Goliath-dominated mentality. Verse 33, Saul says to David, you can't beat him. You can't kill him. He's too big for you. David, with a God-focused perspective, says, well, gosh, since he's so big, how could I possibly miss? You see the difference? Verse 45 You come at me with sword and spear, but I come at you with my sword. No, that's actually not what he says. (laughs) David doesn't say that. He says, I don't come in my power, but I come in the name of the Lord. In his name, with his power. You see, Goliath, you didn't just mock me. You mocked him. You know what that means? I'm not your problem. He is. That man means, though I sling the stones, it's God who directs their flight path. Question. How important is the name of the Lord to you? The glory of the Lord. What would you risk? What would you sacrifice in order to obey him? Would you sacrifice having sex before marriage? Because God would get the glory for that decision. Would you leave Family, in order to go into cross-cultural missions, if God were to get the glory, would you forego a a, a promotion to a six-figure salary so that you could have more time for family in the church? I don't believe, I don't believe that David went into the valley of Elah without fear. He didn't just waltz up to Goliath and say, watch out, I, I float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. My guess is he's terrified. But like the friends in Daniel, Daniel chapter 3, before they're thrown into the fiery furnace, just before they're thrown in, they say to Nebuchadnezzar, whether our God saves us from this furnace or not, we will not bow down. We will not worship any image of you. Here's the point. Courage or true faith, is not the absence of fear. To be courageous, to have faith, means that even when it will not go well for you, you still do what's right, regardless of the consequences. Men, do we have the courage to love our wives selflessly, even when it costs us? Children, Do you have the courage to obey your parents 
even when you don't understand, even when you get mocked by your friends for doing so? Do you have the courage in your business to be truthful on all your taxes, in all your financial uh, documents? Do you have the courage to admit when you're wrong to your spouse, even when you know they will use that against you? Where are we in this story? Well, some will look and say, well, you know, look at David and say, oh, if I just had the faith of David, if I only had the faith of David, that kind of courage, I could conquer all the Goliaths in my life. Here's the problem. That thinking, that's actually only a spiritualized version of Goliath's counterfeit faith. You tracking with me here? That's actually only a spiritualized version of Goliath's counterfeit faith. If only I were like this. If only my faith were like this. The assumption is, if I and my were just like David, then I would just skip through life without pain or or without any defeats. If uh, if only I were so courageous, then God would bless me. But think about it. Brief church history. John the Baptist, great faith, beheaded. The disciples of Jesus, yeah, okay, they were twits at times. Yes, that's true. But they also had faith. And apart from John, they were all tortured and killed. Look at Jesus. So where are we really in the story? I'd say we're on the sidelines with Israel. And if it were me, while the others are sharpening their swords for the last time, um, I'd probably be making sure my shoelaces were on tight. They'd be for the fight, and I'd be ready for the flight, if I'm honest. We're on the sidelines, looking to our champion. Not David, but Jesus. You see, David, in this whole story, is really a preview of Jesus. Well, how? Let me give you just a couple of points. First, David's victory. Did you notice this? David's victory is actually Israel's victory. Goliath shouts in verse 8, choose a man to come down to me. If he wins, we will become your slaves. One man represents the entire nation. One man not only fights for the people, but fights as the people. That means that the moment, that in that moment, when David wins, every Israelite became a victor. In Berlin, well, summer 2014, in case you missed it, the Germans won the World Cup. In Berlin, people went nuts. I mean, nuts. uh, Running through the streets, singing, we are the champions. You know, and I thought, oh, that's great. I'm so excited for you. Now, wait a second. What did you do to win the World Cup? I mean, all you did is you sat, you sat on your sofa and, and drank a Hefeweizen and ate Bratwurst. And yet, there was a clear sense of participation in that victory as if it was theirs. You know, Paul says the same thing in, in Ephesians. He says, we are in Christ. 
What happens to Jesus happens to all those who follow him. The enemy, the enemy of Jesus was no man. Jesus' enemy was far bigger. You see, this is absolutely crucial to understand about Christianity. Jesus does not just defeat the power of sin for us, but in us. We are no longer slaves to our pride, our anger, our shame, our failures. When you entrust your life to Jesus, he gives you the power to overcome every temptation, every addiction in your life. His victory over sin is your victory over sin. But second, the story of David isn't a typical hero story of its time. The champion's weak. He's small. He's vulnerable. These are things that Joshua alluded to earlier. He he, he comes and he appears completely, completely harmless. But you see, that's a preview. Jesus came in weakness as a man into the world. He dies in a cross. His victory does not occur in spite of the weakness. It occurs because of his weakness. David saved Israel from a temporary slavery and death, but Jesus from an eternal death. David risks his life for Israel, but Jesus sacrifices his life for us. Let me make this very practical. The decisive question for you this morning is this. Who do you think he is? If we worry or fear defines us, we've forgotten that the God with whom we have a covenant is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He loves us. When we've lost the, 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 the motivation, the drive to evangelize, to serve our neighbors, to share our love for the gospel in his kingdom with co-workers, we've forgotten that it's God who's the one who opens people's hearts. We sling the words, but God directs their flight path. So what do we do with our amnesia? And I'll close with this. We read 1 Samuel 18, the words that we read near the beginning of this service. Listen again, 1 Samuel 18, verse 4. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him, and he gave it to David, and his armor, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. Why? Because on that day, when he saw the victory of David, he identified with him. He gave David everything that belonged to him, and he followed him. And we must do the same. We must see the greater son of David, Jesus, how he fought for us on the cross, how he triumphed over sin and death, how he left an empty tomb a champion. And like Jonathan, we need to lay our careers, our children, our marriage, our bank accounts, our gifts, our hearts, our lives at his feet. Everything. And say, you and you alone are king. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that this morning you would take your words, plant them deep inside of us. I pray for those of us who have bowed the knee to you, have walked in the shadow of your footsteps, that this text would reinvigorate us. It would inflame a new fire so that we would look to give and just give our lives away. And I pray for those who, 
who serve any other king besides you, that your, your grace, your majesty, your power would be seen as peerless. And they would recognize that it's you and you alone who stand and welcome those t- to understand your grace, to serve not as a slave in your kingdom, but as a son and a daughter. And they'd bow the knee and find freedom. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.